Biz Women Rock, episode 83. Shark Week continues with the ladies of Shark Tank. What's up, ladies? Welcome to the Biz Women Rock podcast. I'm your host, Katie Kremitzos. And this podcast is here to be able to tell the stories of incredible businesswomen from all over the world, all sorts of different industries, so you can really get a sneak peek into how they've actually grown their businesses. This week, we are celebrating Shark Week featuring women of Shark Tank. And today, you are in for such a treat. By the way, I am having such a great time with this shark selfie campaign that we've started. (laughs) If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to bizwomenrock.com. Basically, we have done this entire campaign to help get the word out about these great stories about these women on Shark Tank, and we've given everyone these beautiful artistic shark graphics. You take selfies with them, you put them out on social media, and um, we're just having such a great time with them. Women all over the world are participating. If you would like to participate, go to bizwomenrock.com. You'll get all the instructions and all the beautiful pictures right there for you. All right, let's get into today's story. Today's survivor of the Shark Tank is Keely Tillotson. Now, Keely and her partner, Erica Welsh, co-founded a company called Wild Friends Nut Butter. When it was featured on Shark Tank in May of 2012, it was actually a different name. It was called Wild Squirrel Nut Butter, and she's going to get into the story as to why there's been a brand change. They ended up striking a deal with Barbara after just a few months in business, and now in 2014, they are projected to hit $3 million in revenue. But let me assure you, this is not the story you think it is. So let's get into it. Keely, what's going on? Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Now, I know we're we're short one. Erica couldn't be here because she wasn't feeling so well. So I definitely wanted to make sure we went on with the interview and we had a chance to talk to you today about Wild Friends Nut Butter. Um, Yeah, thanks for having just me. Usually we (laughs) kind of come as a duo. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Well, it's really cool because there's always a different dynamic that happens when you're just with, you know, one person explaining things and answering questions versus two. So um, so we're going to get into uh, we're going to get into the whole story here. So I would love for for you to kind of share with everyone listening about how you first even got involved with, you know, making peanut butter. How did you even first get involved with that whole thing in the first place? I know it's crazy. It's, it's it's something that I had in my cupboard my whole life growing up, and I never thought I would have as strong of a relationship to any one food as I do now to um, all nut butter, peanut butter, almond butter, etc. Uh, Erica and I were college roommates our freshman year of college at University of Oregon, and we lo- loved peanut butter. We were both uh, kind of new vegetarians, and we thought of it as our source of protein, healthy snack. Uh, we were both college athletes as well, so pretty much always hungry. <laughs> so we always had that like big jar of atoms in our uh, dorm room and we would just trade off who would go buy it at the local grocery store so that we had it on hand. And whenever we would run out, it was like a little mini crisis. And so one of those days that we ran out was our sophomore year, a year later after we already lived together for a year and we'd really secured our little nut butter ritual. And we ran out of peanut butter on a Sunday afternoon, pouring rain. Nobody wanted to bike to the store. And we just kind of had a brainwave to try to make our own. We had peanuts. We Erica had just gotten the food processor from her grandma for Christmas. And so we thought, well, it seems like it, you could probably just make it yourself. So we tried and 
what we made was great, but it was just so plain. And we had all these other trail mix ingredients and, you know, we didn't have anything else to do on Sunday afternoon besides procrastinate on our homework. So <laughs> we came up with all these different flavors and just for sitting around with all this peanut butter. And it was a little bit of a dangerous situation. So we decided to take it to our friend's house that night and uh, the rest is history. So, you know, a lot of us always mess around with like kind of an experiment here, an experiment there. What was it that really convinced you like, okay, we kind of have something like maybe we need to jar this and like sell it. Like what, what was that? Yeah. So I always say that you need two people on, on a team or at least for Eric and I, it's great to have two people on the team. Like I'm, I'm always kind of the forever realist and, you know, I work with our finances. I'm always like, well, I don't know if we can actually do that. And Eric has always been the number one team cheerleader and believer in what we have from day one. So she was the one right away. All of our friends loved it, of course. And they were like, you should sell it. And I was probably like, oh, that'd be cool. And Erica was right away, yes, this is a unique product. We should just do it. And so she was kind of was the driver to get that going. And then I kind of kicked into more of the, the, the gear of figuring out, well, let's build a website. Let's uh, apply for the farmer's markets. And Erica was in full recipe development mode. So I think our true nature kicked in right away. And Erica was, let's, let's do it. I believe in us. And I was like, okay, I'll kind of throw the groundwork down. Wow. So our, our, our duo kind of worked out well in that situation. So you were a fairly new company when you guys were like got aired and um, not aired, but when you guys actually recorded your Shark Tank particular video, right? So, um, so right. What, what happened in those first few months until you actually kind of caught interest in, and started your process into Shark Tank? Right. So when we first started, we thought we were going to be like a campus operation, right? There's so many students at U of O. We could have had, you know, a great little U of O, uh, you know, market, and we could have done farmers markets and just been done great on the on you know on campus alone and paid for our books. Maybe that's kind of what we thought we would do is just a little college operation. So we started selling on campus, and what we kept hearing over and over is, you know, where can I buy this when you guys aren't here? There's nothing else like this. There's there's nothing else. You know, there's no other product like this that we can buy. So that made us feel like we had a real unique product, not just in the sense of locally at U of O, but even na nationally. So we started selling online and then getting more and more interest and more and more people started buying online. And at the same time, Shark Tank was just gaining speed as a show. It had gone through, I think, one and a half seasons. And Erica's dad actually watched the show and said, you guys need to submit. And I, I, mean, I always make the correlation to like American Idol, right? Like every good singer is told to go to American Idol. It's like every small business is like, go to Shark Tank. So... I didn't think anything of it of just sending a little email and forgetting about it until the producers called us and said they wanted, this is about the summertime. So we'd only been making product for, you know, four or five months. We sold a couple hundred jars and the producers were calling us, telling us they wanted us to be on the show. Wow. Um, and Eric and I had never watched an episode. So we, of course, immediately sat down and started watching all the YouTube clips we could find. <laughs> and we kept so over and over hearing... I know, hearing these words, meanwhile, neither of us are business majors, right? Like Erica's environmental studies in Spanish, I'm journalism. So we're hearing words like evaluation and revenues, and we're looking at each other like, oh my God, we have to go on television and talk about these things? I don't even, we didn't even know what we were charging for jars at that point. We just chose $4 as a round number that made sense and <laughs> realized we, we had more money in our bank account at the end of the month than when we had started the month, so we figured we were doing something right, but... That was the extent of our business knowledge at the time. <laughs> so obviously those were kind of back in the days where you didn't really like have to fill out this huge online application. Like you literally just sent an email and was, was like, hey, hey, we're interested or here's what yeah, we do. Yeah, I know. It's crazy how much it's changed just in the last, you know, two or three years. We sent, it was just send a picture of yourself, send an email with a description of your business. That's all we did. 
Wow. You know, it was like an old picture from like our college freshman year and uh, a little description of our business and a link to our little free website I had made like the day before or something. Oh my so gosh. it was definitely a scrappy application. And I, I mean, I hear about people waiting in line and, you know, traveling to LA to audition and lots of, uh, it's the show has just been, it's, that's had a crazy success. So what was your process back then? You sent this email, they got back in touch with you to say, we want you on the show. And then what? And then they, they asked us to make a video, which they still have. And I hope never makes it to air because it's the most awkward video ever of me and Erica, like standing in our kitchen with our food processor. We like made peanut butter and it, they told us we couldn't edit or cut the video. So it's like an uncut five minutes of us just like talking about our business that we founded, you know, two months earlier. Um, and it's, it's pretty funny. Um, I, Eric and I watched it the other day and laughed pretty hard. And then we sent that in and then the producers uh, decide whether or not they still want you on the show. And for some reason that they did, and they flew us down to L.A. in September to have, you know, kind of a, a formal audition in person right before taping the show. So they do make you stand in front of the producers and audition before they actually commit to uh, taping your show, which happens in the same week when you're already in L.A. So that was a pretty whirlwind, exciting experience for Eric and I getting a free trip to L.A. And it was like, you know, our first business trip ever. And we felt we felt kind of like posers <laughs> going going on our business trip after selling, you know whatever we had sold a couple thousand jars, maybe. Now, are you like, are you in communication with anyone else who's on the show? Like, cause I know now it works a little differently, but back then, I mean, were you seeing anyone else? Were you getting introduced to anyone else? Were you guys all like kind of waiting backstage together? Or what, what interaction um, did you have with other people? They definitely made an effort to not, uh, they, they didn't make an effort to socialize us, right? Like we were always driven separately everywhere. Um, our, all of our green rooms, audition rooms were separate. So they didn't really want us all talking and like, you know, strategizing. They want every clip to be unique and different. So they don't want people to come in with the same approach. So I, I think that's, that's their, it's not really, I don't think it's like a, let's keep them separate so they don't like share anything, but they, they definitely want, it's for TV. So they want everybody to be fresh and have their own preconceptions about the show so that they can have a genuine reaction on screen. It's, it's all very, it, we were really interested. The TV world was, was super interesting to us. I mean, everything from the toast we were serving our peanut butter on was like how they how dark we wanted it, and like everything, every oh, wow. is that everything dialed in. It's it's very dialed in. So um, we were just kind of along for the ride, so to speak. So we we had our little pitch scripted, but after that, it's all just whatever whatever comes out in the conversation. And it I felt like it was a pretty genuine conversation um, that. And, and they, they ended up cropping it pretty uh, accurately. I mean, as much as you can, taking a 45-minute conversation down to a seven-minute conversation. Yeah, because they have to fit it all in. Now, right. t tell us a little bit about, like, the experience of, like, the actual, you know, set that you did, like, the actual conversation that you did have. Like, um, I mean, obviously, everyone is nervous, and you can see everyone's nerves up there a little bit, and we're, everyone watching is sort of feeling for you, but... What was your experience? What um, what sort of line of questioning really was surprising for you? I was really surprised. I one of the focuses of our of our show, and one they definitely included in the seven minutes because there's, you go down different lines of conversation during the conversation, and some of them are interesting for TV, and some of them are just you know kind of small talk. And one line that we went down was you, you girls can't be in school and run this business, and that was a big focus of our clip, and. 
that was really surprising to me and Erica that, you know, we'd watched every show, but no one else had really been in college besides this one duo um, of guys, and they were just graduating. So that hadn't come up in a previous show. And so we were kind of taken aback by that. And we we had never really thought about leaving school for this. And it, you hear about people leaving school to start, like, multimillion-dollar tech companies. But we hadn't – I don't think we truly felt enough faith in what we had to, to leave school up until that point. So having that conversation and hearing these multimillionaires say, you need to leave school to do this, um, this is worth pursuing outside of school is essentially the message we got out of it. And so even though we never committed on screen to leaving school, obviously that'd be a big thing to just drop on national television that we hadn't even, we didn't even, hadn't even <laughs> talked to each other about it. Surprise After mom and show, dad, um, leaving school. <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, on the plane ride home, we both said, you know what, we're, we're done. We're leaving school. You know, it's, it's this is a super exciting and this is something that we need to be pursuing right now. And so after the show, that was a big revelation for us. Um, that now, that was something that we could justify doing. Now you, um, you since, do you think that you would have made that decision to leave school if you wouldn't have gotten a deal? Cause you, you did. And I want to clarify this. You did end up making a deal with Barbara at like on air, like you, you know, in the video, right, it shows correct. that you've made a deal with Barbara, right? So um, yeah. before I ask that question, actually, let me then ask the follow-up question, which is what really happens right afterwards? Like, is it a done deal? Do you still sit down and talk about, you know, do they need to kind of do more due diligence on your business? Or what actually happens once, you know, you kind of shake hands and say, yes, we're good? Right. So Eric and I, nothing on show was binding, legally binding. Um, and Eric and I weren't really sure what the process was going to be afterwards. I mean, we, we had a vague idea, but we, you know, we'd never gone through anything like that before. And people watch the show and they say $50,000 is 40%. That's crazy. Um, and it, it, you know, in hindsight, we're really glad that it didn't go through at the time. Our thinking was, you know what? We just started this. This isn't our life's work. This is something that is fun and exciting and it could go so many different directions and, Let's just choose this direction and see what happens. I think we were kind of just, well, Barbara's experience. This is great money. This is a fun experience for us. Let's just see what happens. That's always kind of been our philosophy, or especially at the beginning it was because we didn't have anything invested really financially or, you know, too many blood, sweat, and tears at that point. Um, but then afterwards, you, uh, you know, you talk to someone from Barbara's team. They tell you they're going to do due diligence. They ask you for a list of documents, and then you send them to them. Meanwhile, you're also talking to your lawyers, and you're talking through the situation, and everybody kind of has time to decompress from the pressure of the situation. And, uh, you know, Eric and I right away were thinking we could go down this road with Barbara or we could keep doing what we're doing and kind of grow organically on our own. And we didn't really have a real concept of what an investor relationship meant or what it meant to take someone else's money. And, you know, we'd never really done that before. And I think that we just were not ready to do that and we wanted to do our own thing. And, um, we, so we kind of had our own time to think about that as well. So ultimately the deal didn't go through. I mean, uh, it doesn't happen a lot of times in real life, not just in Shark Tank, that deals don't go through after they're offered. So um, we definitely didn't feel tricked or, you know, like people always say, I'm so sorry it didn't go through, you know, Barbara, you know. But we didn't. It was definitely a mutual situation. And, you know, we, we definitely look back on it and feel really happy about the decision. Well, and that's what I was going to ask you. Like, can you, do you have the legal ability at that point after the show to say, and just kidding, Barbara, we don't want to do this. We want to go out on our own. Or does there have to be a mutual understanding that it's not going to work for both parties? Because no, either. Yeah, either party can walk away. Really? Yeah, that's really interesting to me, because I would imagine that you know, if people know that they would, 
you know, people who kind of think in this way might say, well, I'm just going to go on there for exposure and get this deal and then I can walk away and do it all myself. Yeah, it's funny because we hear a lot about a lot of people saying, you know, even other Shark Tank people, like, I just want to go on for exposure. And um, I think still there's something about being in that experience that makes you feel like you want to get what you think is a fair deal. And even fake taking an unfair deal uh, is hard for a lot of people, I think. And also, like, the perception of them being on TV and taking a deal they don't like. And I think there's uh, there's some people that are in it kind of – they have more maybe personal – uh, ego on the line with taking a deal that may- they don't necessarily like than Eric and I did walking in there with like, you know, two years of college behind us, four months of building this business. And uh, the last thing we were thinking about was how we were personally going to look. We were just afraid we were going to like mess up the answer to a question about our company or something. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it was in you guys that, that prompted Barbara to offer you a deal? I think she likes that. I mean, we were both pretty scrappy, I think, um, well, we always have been, but on the show, too. I mean, you know, it, they definitely edited it down the way, your, uh, the way your, your reactions are to questions, and they definitely showed every face of us looking worried or stressed out that they possibly <laughs> could. Um, but, you know, during the show, Eric and I, I think we kept pretty good humor. I mean, obviously, everyone's like, oh, Kevin is so mean. And uh, we just, you know, he was pretty funny uh, in general. He's just loving his, his life up there. He's just they're just so happy. They're kind of like little actors just like in playing their parts. So uh, I, I think she liked that. And I think that she also really liked the taste of the product. That was the most exciting part for us was just the sharks all tasting our peanut butters and saying like, this is delicious. This is great. And that's all you really want on TV is every, every person up there telling, talking about how great your product is because whether they want to invest in the company is one thing, but whether they want to eat the product is the most important because, the majority of people watching are consumers, not investors. So right afterwards, you know, you pretty much mutually decided that you're not going to do the deal. What happened then? Like, it sounds like you and Erica sort of had a, you know, coming together moment saying, listen, we got to do this full force. We got to do this real. So what were the major next steps that you took in order to move forward with your business? Yeah, it was one of those things where you're, you know, on the plane ride home and plane rides kind of have that ambience, right? Of like, oh my gosh, we have nothing but to do on this plane ride, but just plan and talk. So we spent the whole plane ride home just like talking and thinking about what we wanted to do next. And what we really wanted to do more than anything was launch in stores. And we'd spent some of the summer before we uh, went on Shark Tank talking to local retailers and working on uh, launching in stores. And we'd gotten the commitment from our local chain here in Portland, one of the most well-respected local chains called New Seasons. And they have 12 stores at the time. And we also had a commitment from our local store uh, near our college market of choice. So we launched in all of those stores at the beginning of November. And that was, I mean, crazy exciting from, we'd spent the whole summer basically delivering on our bike or hauling everything to a farmer's market and somebody's borrowed car. We didn't even have a car at the time. And um, so being able to go to a store, the concept of being able to go to a store and have to see somebody buying our product without us physically putting it in their hands was uh, crazy to us and super awesome and very exciting. So once we launched in the stores though, you, it's funny because we focus so hard on getting in our jars to shelf because there's a lot of work that goes from taking it to a farmer's market to putting it on shelf. And then as soon as we got to a store and we, you know, taken our selfie with our product and gotten all excited, then we it's just, just thought, well, who's going to take it off the shelf now? Nobody knows who we are. So then that launches into the whole next thing, which is once you put it on the shelf, you got to sell it off. So we just immediately started focusing on the next thing, which was let's sell these 10,000 jars that we made at our, at our co-packer for the, the first time, um, which we made in October. I mean, you guys have had a lot of success getting into stores, and you even just really alluded to there, 
like how big of a deal it is to actually get into stores and there are people trying their best I mean they have a product they believe wholeheartedly that it, it that it deserves to be in stores what are some of the most unique ways that you have used that have been very effective to actually get you into stores right so I mean just like uh how, kind of how we got into Shark Tank which is just see what happens do sometimes doing the easiest most basic route is something that a lot of people overlook because they just figure it can't be that easy, right? I mean, and it's not easy to get into stores, but what Eric and I would do literally for, right away was, well, we emailed the CEO of New Seasons and we said, we, you know, we're, she was a woman and she is, well, she's no longer the CEO. So, she, you know, she's a woman, Elisa Sadler is her name, and she um, is very well respected here in Portland and in Oregon uh, for being, you know, a very pro-woman businesswoman. And she was speaking at U of O, but we missed her speech. So we said, you know, we're so sorry we missed your speech. We'd love to show you our product if you have any time or if, whenever you're next in Eugene or in Portland or whatever. And she said, next week, 10 a.m., Thursday, come to my office, bring your product. And we thought we were just going to get some advice from her. And then she, at the end of the meeting, she said she tasted it. She loved it. She's like, okay, whenever you have a shelf-ready product, I have a space waiting for you in all 12 of my stores. So I think sometimes it's worth it to just say, like, well, what would I do if I wanted to get my product to the store? Well, let's you know, email the person who's in charge of that. Let's go to their office and see if they're around. Let's walk into the back of the store and see if the, the buyer's around. And, you know, definitely don't go the route of going to the website and filling out the new product submission form and kind of going through all of the bureaucracy of it. For Eric and I, we just, we're always so excited. We just can't wait. We just want to go do whatever the fastest thing is. So we always just want to go to the store and talk to somebody. Um, and I think that that technique is sometimes uh, – pretty effective when you when you kind of are you show the people how excited you are about your product and the best way to do that is in person how many stores are you in now we're in over 2,000 stores now throughout the country and um not all of those obviously have been in-person pitches I mean that's just not possible at this point uh I think to build that initial sales data I mean you have to go in you have to get into some stores whether it's the smallest store in your in your city a farmer's market, you have to show people that your products sell. And so us getting into those first stores was the hardest because that's a total risk. They did, our product is not well known. Uh, no, they've never tried it and nobody, no consumers have tried it. And so getting into those first stores and then just set, demoing every day, like setting up our little sampling table, selling as much as we can, um, putting in that time to build your customer base. And then you can say to the next store, you know, we're selling really awesome at your competitor over in Portland and, um, we'd love to be on your shelf too. And then that every sale gets a little easier because you have that sales data behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't want to grow too big too fast and have mediocre sales everywhere. It's harder to, to sell um, to more stores that way. Now, um, can you talk a little bit about what the immediate effect of all of that exposure on Shark Tank had? You know, like like you were there, it aired in May of 2012, so just a few months after you guys had recorded it. Um, you know, where were you, like, as a company when it aired? Like, what did you have to be ready for? And then what happened? Right. So that was, like, a huge question mark for us. Well, the question mark was whether it was going to air at all because it wasn't set to air in the regular season. So we kind of forgot about it. And then it was aired when ABC bought more episodes. So that was like an amazing, happy surprise. We were never sure if it was ever going to see the light of uh, television. So it, it aired. And right then we were in the 30 or so stores that were kind of along our part of the I-5 route. So, you know, from Eugene to Portland and everywhere in between. And so we were just self-delivering. 
and just getting into a distribution system. So with trucks picking up our product and delivering it for us from kind of a central warehouse, which was a big leap for us. And so it aired and of course, amazing, crazy online sales. We backed up our website so it wouldn't crash and got a ton of online sales. We were still packing all our own online orders from that, uh, at that point. So we had lots of like paper cuts from the cardboard boxes, <laughs> bought a bunch of industrial tape guns and we just like, you know, packed boxes for days on end to fill orders. And then, so that was, that alone was crazy. But then it immediately became easier to, to sell our product, not only to consumers, but to stores because Shark Tank was just gaining so much popularity, especially that season. We had over 10 million people watch the episode and it just, you know, instead of saying, you know, we're a company from Portland and I'm Keely and I'm Erica and having to do the whole intro, we could go to a buyer and so many people watch Shark Tank that the buyer would say, oh, I just saw your episode wow. and I'd love to carry your product. I'd love to bring it in. And you just kept getting more and more yeses because people were confident that consumers would recognize the brand, would be excited about the brand. And um, it's just, it opened a lot of doors in the, in the sense of just people feeling confident that it would sell right off the bat regardless of it being a good product, if people can't, most people are not going to be able to try it before they buy it. So if they recognize something about it or if they, they feel comfortable buying it, that's a really important kind of unmeasurable asset that Shark Tank uh, has given to our company. Now, somewhere along the way, you had to go through a brand change. So when you were on Shark Tank, you aired as Wild Squirrel Nut Butter. And now as we're right. talking, you guys are called Wild Friends Nut Butter. Can you talk a little bit about why you had that brand change? What happened? Sure. So, you know, the more and more I talk to other companies about this issue, the more I realize that there is a, a kind of a, a trademark law crisis going on right now um, in the sense it's just not not a very clear or a great system for, for brand names. So we were Wild Squirrel, and another company had the word squirrel in their name, and they were kind of in the nut, nut butter realm, and they decided that um, they didn't want other companies to have the word squirrel in their name. And so we got a, uh, a letter of lawsuit intent um, in the mail. We got served, actually literally served to our door, and uh, which was, of course, very uh, surreal and kind of terrifying and felt very personal to us at the time because Erica's childhood nickname was squirrel. And we had a you know very longstanding association with the word. We called ourselves the squirrels and so it felt kind of like someone was trying to take away our identity. And um, so we, you know, we spent a few months kind of in crisis about it, honestly, and trying to change our name and really worrying about it and stressing about it. And ultimately, we decided not to go through with the lawsuit and to just change our name. Um, it just, lawsuits are just way too expensive for a startup company to justify, um, even if you think you're going to win at the end of it all. And we changed our name to Wild Friends after much debate and came up with the new tagline, Wild Flavors, Friendly Ingredients, and you know, after all the blood, sweat, and tears and, and stress of changing a name and worrying about rebranding, and it, there's a, I can count on like one hand the number of people that have noticed, honestly. We kept the same logo, and uh, all we've gotten is positive feedback, if anything. Most people just see the squirrel and recognize the product on the shelf and grab it off, and it's been totally anticlimactic the day we changed our name. It was like, nobody cares, <laughs> which was which was great, but it was it was so funny. It's like, you know, nobody really cares about the name. They just care about the brand. And we learned that those things are not uh, irrevocably linked. They are separate, and you can keep your brand and change your name. My advice would just be, don't worry about it. Change your name. Like, it's all you. It's just all in your head that that, that name is the only name you can succeed under. There are 
it's it's all just in your head, right? Like there there's a million different ways to be creative and and just change it up and not have the tox- toxicity of a lawsuit hanging over your head for years on end. Now, Keely, you know, you guys now, last year in 2013, you ended the year as a $1.3 million business. You're projected to hit $3 million in revenue for for 2014. And as I was talking to you beforehand, I mean, there are three full-time people on your team. You definitely outsource (laughs) and you leverage other um, other people and other companies. So it takes a lot of organization and operational, you know, skill to be able to make something that big happen in the way that it's happening. So can you maybe give us just maybe one or two tips or insights to how you internally run your team, you run your operations that that makes it run so smooth? Yeah, so I mean, that's a great compliment. It doesn't always run as, as smoothly as we like, of course, every day is, you know, trying. Um, it, it's been a really scrappy operation and I'm really grateful for that for a few reasons. I mean, I think it's almost a blessing sometimes to start with less money than you want because you, we've learned so much in the process. I've learned how to be a bookkeeper. I've learned how to uh, market and Eric has learned social media and we've learned how to, you know, be the faces of this brand and all of these things that we might not have learned if we just had all the money in the world to start and hire people that knew what they were doing. And now we're kind of the people that know what we're doing. So that's a great thing to, to learn. Um, with that said, right now we're, you know, we're kind of in a, in a sweet spot or a spot where we're learning, which is, you know, I work with Erica and, and my dad, Bruce, who used to work for Honest Tea. So he has a lot of industry experience and he manages kind of all of our sales and marketing. And we have what's called brokers around the country that sell our product, but on a contract basis, we have a co-packer who makes our product on a contract basis. And then we have a part-time people who demo for us in stores and, you know, sample products because Erica and I are not able to do all of that ourselves anymore. And so, you know, managing kind of all these part-time uh, contract employees is definitely been a lesson learned. It's, it's, you really have to learn how to set processes, you know, communication. And I think the number one thing I would say is when you're working with a small team that it's super important to have communication about who's in charge of what, because everyone's doing so much that stuff can slip through the cracks. So we make an effort to, uh, Eric and I work together every day in our office. My dad works from home and we have, you know, constant meetings, constant communication. We always make sure that we're in the loop on, on each other's things. There's a lot of us CCing on emails going on, um, probably too much, but uh, we, we kind of err on the side of too much communication rather than not enough because that's some stuff that's missed. What has been one of the most painful moments that you've had over this experience? You know, something that was just really dark or just really, really tough to get through? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things would definitely be the lawsuit. I think it was, uh, it, those things can definitely be divisive um, for your team and for, for, for yourself because everybody, you know, once it's some, one day you all agree on something, right? Like what your brand is, what your name is. And then the next day it's like we need to come up with a new name and everybody has different ideas and you start to feel like your team is diverging a little bit. And I think that was hard for us, and especially the first week, couple weeks or month of uh, brainstorming our new name. There was just a lot of, conflict and you know coming up with those creative things can just be so challenging and but through it all I think it was amazing the way our our final name came out which is you know all three of us my daughter Erica and I were I think we were in a hotel room because we were all traveling and we don't even remember who said wild friends first but everybody immediately was like yes that's that's the name and so it was amazing after all of that that we came through and just all agreed on a name and literally can't remember whose idea it was and so you realize that you get so much stronger through going through that and you learn, again, the best way to communicate because 
I communicate differently with Erica than I do with my dad, and my dad and Erica communicate differently than they do with me, and you kind of learn the best ways to do that with each other through the through that kind of forced conflict um, of you know coming up with something creative like that as a team. It's it's very challenging. And what really makes you and Erica work so well together? Like, what is the glue that really holds you guys together? Or what practices do you have that ensures that you two are constantly moving towards the same vision? Yeah, so, I mean, we have gotten so lucky with each other. And uh, I don't even know if I could necessarily articulate what makes us so great. Because, you know, we're best friends on one hand. So that's not really something you can articulate. We just totally connect and get along and have share the same sense of humor. And But I'd say the number one thing or maybe two things about Erica and I is one that our, our career skills are completely opposite. As I mentioned earlier, Erica is such a people person, so great at communicating, so great at managing. She manages all of our demo people and trains them all and uh, teaches them all kind of the wild friend spirit, which is so embodied in her. She's so good at that. Does all our social media. And uh, I prefer to do more of the analytical side. So all of our bookkeeping and kind of fundraising and finance and uh, working with our co-packer and planning production and, and more of the back end. Uh, so the fact that we never have to fight over who does what when a new task arises and we always know who's, whose plate it's going to go to it saves us a lot of conflict. And then also when it comes down to it, when something horrible is happening, when something, some fire needs to be put out, we're both very easygoing and calm and non-critical of each other. And I think that's really important to preserving a good friend relationship too. It's never anybody's fault. It's just stuff happens every day something happened and let's fix it we're very very fixing it oriented versus blame so that's always been really important to maintaining our friendship as well as our working relationship is feeling like we we got to have each other's back all the time Keely I really want to bring this conversation to a close by asking you what is one of the major ways that you have evolved as a businesswoman over these years oh man I would just say the confidence to ask questions and I think I've asked more questions every month of running the business than I did the month before. And you'd think it'd be the opposite, but I think I came into business thinking that everybody knew what they were doing, that if I ask a question, it's going to make me sound stupid and I should just Google it on my own when I get home and don't ask the question. And now I've learned that when I take a meeting with somebody who knows what they're talking about, or even if I don't, you know, if I don't know what I'm talking about, I should just ask questions. And that actually makes you look more engaged more passionate about learning. It's almost never is going to make you look stupider. It's going to make you look like you're interested. And usually the question you're about to ask is a question that's going to drive the conversation forward instead of, you know, grinding it to a halt and everyone staring at you like you're an idiot. I mean, the mo- and the more you learn, the more you know what questions to ask. Sometimes you don't even know where to start. So I, I feel like I really gained kind of a base of knowledge so that if I go into a meeting with a banker or an investor or a buyer, that if I ask a question it's going to help me learn even more. And that, for me, was a huge revelation instead of just sitting there kind of quietly and making notes of what I would need to ask someone else later or Google later instead of just asking it in the moment. And if you had it all to do all over again, would you do your Shark Tank experience any differently? Oh, man. I mean, I, if I did it right now, I would definitely do it differently. In fact, I don't know <laughs> if I would do it at all. I'm, I'm, I would do it again in that moment, but I'm so glad that it happened to us at that time in our business where we could just say yes without worrying, well, what's this going to do to our brand that we've established? I mean, what about all these years of work and how am I going to look and what are they going to ask? And we were just in that place where we could say, well, sure, let's do it. Why not? And I'm so glad it happened to us then instead of now because I think we would we would maybe have more of a 
we would feel like we had more to lose uh, by being on the show and having a negative experience rather than then when we felt like we just had nothing but something to gain. So um, if we went on now, I think we would uh, lose some of the kind of magic we had when we went on the show, which was just being completely new to business. Um, I think now we would we would try to go in and be you know all savvy, and I think that uh, our original Shark Tank episode is is so fun because we were so fresh and unaware of what was to come. Well, Keely, I really want to say thank you so much for being on the show, for sharing your journey, and for giving us some really good insights not only about your business but about your experience with Shark Tank. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's really fun. You can get the show notes at bizwomenrock.com forward slash 83. You'll find a bunch of links directly to Keely's website, as well as just some cool quotes that I got out of today. The biggest takeaway that I got from this conversation is her positioning about branding and her name and really the fact that um, she had a really great quote. It was, Nobody really cares about the name, they just care about the brand, and we learn that those things are not irrevocably linked. Thought that was a brilliant takeaway. Hope you enjoyed it today. Remember to participate in our Shark Selfie campaign. Go to bizwomenrock.com to find out how you can be a part of it. Thanks for listening today, and I'll see you on the next episode.